Emily Zenos lives in St. Paul with her husband and, get ready, seven children. She is a passionate advocate for women and children through her involvement in the Ask Me First Minnesota Project and the Hands Across the Aisle Coalition, which unites conservatives and progressive women in defense of biological sex-based rights. Emily has helped to author the Parent Resource Guide, which is a tool for parents and others looking to respond to the transgender issue. That guide is here with us tonight. It is debuting in Denver, Colorado. Would you welcome Emily Zenos? Thank you for that very generous introduction, Lynn. Um, so I'm not used to being brought out to speak or having people listen to me. I'm the mother of seven, like she said, and number eight is on the way. I'm used to being ignored. <laughs> so I'm glad to be here and to talk to you about this really important issue. I'm gonna be perfectly honest with you. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an academic. I'm not a lifelong activist, I don't enjoy confrontation, and frankly, I'm terrified of speaking in front of crowds. <laughs> I'm an everyday pregnant Minnesota mom, and I'm here tonight speaking in front of a crowd without any fancy degrees because I can't stay silent about what I've seen. Four years ago, I found myself standing unexpectedly on the front lines of a battle over human identity. That year, I received an email from the principal at my children's charter school explaining that a gender non-conforming boy had enrolled in kindergarten. Within the space of a few months, the family had announced that their son was really their daughter. What followed were school staff trainings on gender inclusion, an insistence that the girls' restrooms be opened up to boys, and finally demands that the transgender propaganda book, I Am Jazz, be read to kindergartners without parental notification or permission. Parents who, like me, saw this as a form of ideological indoctrination imposed via threat of litigation weren't few in number, thank God. We organized and amplified our voice. We were called bigots, our comments to the school board were censored, and we were accused of creating a hostile environment, all because we refused to profess this belief in the eradication of sex. Instead, we fought back. We collected hundreds of signatures from the school community on a petition opposing mixed-sex bathrooms. We rented our school gym and hosted a talk on the harms of transgender identification. And we sent a letter to the school board with a long list of students who were not permitted to use a mixed-sex restroom. Sadly, despite our efforts, our school board made the wrong choice and adopted what's called a gender inclusion policy. It effectively erased recognition of sex from all policy and practice at our school. My children were among the 94 students who left that school at the end of the year. I didn't choose this battle, and I thought that I would probably just walk away from it if it was just about our school, but it wasn't just about our school. I knew I had to speak up when I discovered that there are thousands of children every year, children like that kindergartner at our school, some of them very young, 
and some of the mentally vulnerable who are being led to believe that they need medical interventions on their healthy bodies. As far as I'm concerned, no school should be celebrating ideas that lead children to believe that they're trapped in the wrong body. I've spent the last four years working with people from across the political spectrum to shed light on the consequences of this ideology. And here's what's become abundantly clear to me. We can't wait for state legislatures, the courts, and the White House to solve this problem for us. It's everyday people like you and I educating the public on the consequences of this issue that will little by little change this culture into one that can proudly proclaim that every child is born in exactly the right body. With that goal in mind, I helped to create the Parent Resource Guide, Responding to the Transgender Issue, which is available tonight through the Respect Life Office. Thank you. This is a comprehensive guide that will help to educate anyone on the consequences of the transgender issue, but it's especially targeted at public school parents who wanna work with their school board in a positive and constructive way. I needed this guide four years ago. So tonight, there are three questions that I'd like to address. First, what is gender identity ideology? That's the term that I use to describe the transgender movement and the ideas behind it. Second, what happens when school policies celebrate this ideology? And finally, how can we work with our schools to create better solutions? So let's start with gender identity ideology. This is a theory or a set of ideas that are antithetical to a Christian understanding of the human person. And frankly, it even offends a purely scientific empirical approach to human biology. Let's start by defining gender. Gender has four different definitions. Gender is sometimes used as a synonym for sex. It's the name given to sex stereotypes by feminists. It's used to describe the sociocultural or behavioral aspects of sex. A lot of times social scientists use it in that way. Finally, it's also the name of an ideology that claims bodily sex is irrelevant to human identity. That final definition is the definition that's at play in the transgender movement. So if there's anything I can ask you to do, it's stop saying gender. Gender is a conf purposefully confusing term, and it's meant to split human identity into mind and body. Something else you'll notice about gender, it's chosen, fluid, not objectively verifiable, and it can directly contradict sex. It's not a synonym for sex. Next, let's look at how advocates of gender identity ideology define gender identity. In 2016, when we were in the thick of the so-called bathroom wars, the Department of Health and Human Services declared that they define gender identity as your internal sense of being male, female, neither, or a combination of both male and female. That definition used by the HHS is the same definition that's used in gender identity laws and policies everywhere, including school policy. So we know gender identity isn't a synonym for sex because there's no one who's neither male or female, and we know there's no one who's both male and female. Every one of us is either male or female, and we know that sex can't change. Wherever gender identity appears in law or policy, there's one thing that you'll be required to do, ignore sex. But this is a pretty confusing theory for adults, so how on earth are activists communicating it to little kids? 
there are a couple of methods that I'm seeing in schools. One is to manipulate a child's understanding of the world before she reaches a stage of child development known as sex constancy. Oops. Um, before the age of six or seven, kids generalize and categorize the world around them according to appearances. So if you've heard the, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, then it probably is a duck line of reasoning. Well, the littlest kids would put it more like this. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it most definitely is a duck. And that's because kids under five or six think that objects change their real essence when they change their appearance. So if you give a four-year-old Barbie doll, or if you give a four-year-old a Barbie doll and a Ken doll, they can tell you that Barbie's a girl and Ken is a boy because of their clothing. But if you give Barbie's purse to Ken, then that same child will tell you without hesitation that Ken is now a girl because they think that people change their sex when they change their appearance. Kids at this stage just don't know yet that there's something far more fundamental that makes a man a man. When kids can tell you that Ken holding that purse is just a man holding a purse, then you know they've reached that stage of development called sex constancy. This is a stage of development a lot of adults don't seem to have reached these days. <laughs> so now imagine how easily this theory of gender identity can be communicated to those very little kids that are under six or seven. They don't yet know that clothing is not what makes us male or female. For the kids who don't understand what bodily sex is, drag queen story hour, the many children's picture books that depict boys wearing dresses, or even their kindergarten classmates coming out as trans, all persuasively make the case for gender identity ideology. Another way that schools are teaching the tenets of gender identity to kids is by teaching them to understand that their mind or their feelings are separate from and more important than their body. Enter, enter the gender unicorn, which is a popular cartoon used in public schools across the country to teach gender. This meme confuses kids into thinking that their body doesn't tell them everything they need to know about who they are. Instead, the purple unicorn fractures them into five different categories. Gender identity, gender expression, sex assigned at birth, physical attraction, and emotional attraction. What unites these five categories? They're all rooted in choice or feelings. That's a direct contradiction to sex, which isn't a choice, it's not a feeling, and it can't be changed. So instead of correctly teaching kids that there's nothing we can do or choose or feel that can change who we are as male or female, the gender unicorn confuses kids into thinking that boys who play with dolls are really girls, or girls who hate to wear dresses are really boys. Even bodily sex is, according to the unicorn, an arbitrary choice of the doctor who delivered you. Proponents of the gender unicorn will say that gender identity is freeing, that the body's a kind of a cage that obscures your true identity. But I think that when the stable and unchanging reality of the body tells you who you are, then you have the confidence and the freedom to pick from all kinds of clothing, hobbies, and careers without worrying that your choices will undermine your identity. Let's move on to the consequences of school policies that celebrate gender identity. 
I know you've probably seen the numerous articles that have highlighted, for example, girls who discovered their high school doesn't have single-sex locker rooms anymore. Maybe you heard about the French teacher who was fired for refusing to use um, preferred pronouns. The Connecticut track athlete who lost out on college scholarship opportunities after two boys started um, competing on her team. Or maybe you heard of the eight-year-old in Oregon whose teacher pulled him out of recess for one-on-one -on -one lessons in transgender ideas after she suspected that he was maybe transgender. Now that school districts are passing gender inclusion policies and some state-level departments of education are providing districts with transgender guidance documents, you can expect that these stories will only proliferate in your newsfeed. Gender inclusion policies mandate affirmation of gender identity ideology throughout a school. They ensure the negative health consequences among students that they claim most need those gender inclusion policies because those who identify as trans or non-binary are most likely to be hurt by those policies. What school would want to contribute to these sorts of outcomes? In countries that have national health systems like Australia, Canada, and the UK, data are available on children seeking gender affirmative medical interventions. In just seven years, there's been a 2,000% increase in children seeking, sexual, seeking treatment for sexual identity confusion. The number of girls identifying as boys has jumped by 4,000% in London's Gender Identity Clinic for Children. Children with autism spectrum disorders are seven times more likely to identify as the, the opposite sex than the general population. Are children who are particularly vulnerable paying the highest price for these gender affirmative policies? A 2013 study, oops, a 2013 study looked at the effect of social transition on transgender identifying young people. Social transition is changing your name, dress, hairstyle, and pronouns to those of the opposite sex. 74% of kids who had not socially transitioned eventually became comfortable with their sex. Only 34% of the kids who did socially transition came to accept their sex. Gender inclusion policies mandate that a school cooperate in the social transition of a student. That makes it so much harder for that child to feel at home in their body and much more likely that they'll pursue chemical and surgical transition later. A 2018 study from a gender affirmative doctor in California revealed that Girls as young as 13 are undergoing double mastectomies in order to appear male. Popular documentaries and TV shows have revealed that boys as young as 17 are undergoing full gender reassignment surgeries. These are full genital surgeries. Here we have a picture of Emmy Smith, who was in a National Geographic documentary, and Jazz Jennings, who's the star of the I Am Jazz reality TV show. Both underwent full sex reassignment surgery. Um, studies show that 100% of children who use child, uh, puberty blockers will go on to use cross-sex hormones. That leaves them permanently sterile if they follow that particular treatment protocol. Again, when schools are playing a role in socially affirming gender inclusion, these are the sorts of outcomes that we have. 
Finally, I'm going to read a quote to you from a parent of a child at a very gender-affirmative school. She says, My daughter started identifying as transgender two years ago at the age of 11. There are a shocking number of young students at my daughter's school who identify as transgender. In my daughter's seventh grade classroom of 30 students, four girls and one boy identify as transgender. That's nearly 17% of her entire class. One final note, you should know that many of the young children who express a desire to be the opposite sex will end up experiencing same-sex attraction as adults. No matter what your views are on homosexuality, no one should ever be placed on a path to unnecessary surgery and sterilization because they experience same-sex attraction. These are the facts we need to be bringing to our school boards, administrators, and teachers. Affirmation of gender identity ideology is hurting all kids, but it's especially hurting kids who identify as trans. It's our job to uncover the reality of gender affirmation and shed light on the outcomes so that our school boards and school administrators will know better than to affirm anything that puts kids on a path to bodily harm. So how can we work with schools to create better solutions? Right now, over 50 million students are attending public schools. That means that the vast majority of children in the US stand to be affected by the policies these schools adopt. Though I know Catholic schools and homeschooling and other private school options are a part of the solution for some families, the reality is that these options are impossible for many families. The most vulnerable families, including low-income families and those with disabled children, need public schools for their children. And I believe it's a matter of justice that we work to make these schools safe places for every child. The Parent Resource Guide is a tool that you can use in your efforts to remedy the lack of accurate information on the issue and improve your school community. The guide was written from a secular perspective so that you can share it with your school board members, your teachers, etc. It details parent and student rights, and it offers tips on working with your school to create positive policy change, all while using data from current research on the consequences of gender affirmation in our schools and the broader culture. There's something unique about the Parent Resource Guide that you should know. This guide was co-branded by organizations from across the political spectrum. From the pro-choice, radical feminist organization Women's Liberation Front, to the Conservative Family Policy Alliance and Heritage Foundation, the guide represents people from across the political spectrum who are all concerned about the consequences of this ideology. Please don't think that this is a right or left issue. You can make that point abundantly clear to your school board by sharing the parent resource guide with them and pointing out that this wasn't something put together by the Catholic Church. This wasn't something put together by a Christian legal advocacy organization. This is a guide put together by all sorts of people across the political spectrum. I know that there is no easy solution to this really big problem, but taking action really isn't that complicated. So here are five ideas that I pulled out of the Parent Resource Guide for public school parents. Schedule an appointment before school even starts with your school principal. 
go by yourself, bring a group of parents with you, but introduce yourself on friendly terms and ask some initial questions. You can find out if your school is teaching sex ed, if gender identity is included in those lessons. We also include in the parent resource guide a comprehensive list of questions that you can ask your school administrators to help you to find out what the policies are at your school, what sort of training school staff might have undergone, and what types of classroom lessons and all school assemblies might be coming up. Second, request notification when gender, sexuality, diversity, family life issues, you name it, are gonna be presented to your child in the classroom during presentations or assemblies. Your request may or may not be honored, of course, but it's your right to ask. And I think that if you have a good relationship with your teacher or principal, they might just choose to give you advance notification, whatever the school's policy is. You can also ask your school board to pass a parental notification policy that will ensure parents are always notified ahead of time before these sorts of subjects come up. Next, let your school board know that you oppose gender inclusion policies that allow mixed sex access to restrooms, locker rooms, and overnight accommodations. If your school is considering adopting a policy like this, the Parent Resource Guide has a letter template that you can use to inform your school about your concerns. We also include a student physical privacy policy that your board can use as a model to ensure that locker rooms and restrooms remain respectful of privacy. Like I mentioned before, your board probably doesn't know that feminists, atheists, gay, lesbian, and transgender identified people actually share our concerns. Give your school board members a copy of the Parent Resource Guide and make it clear to your school that there are many people who identify as LGBT but also reject gender identity ideology. There are many people in the LGBT community who've been disproportionately hurt by gender identity. Share their stories and shed light on what they've endured. It's a fact that if you identified as trans and you regret your transition, you will be shunned by the LGBT community. Um, if I can request anything, it's prayerfully consider what can we be doing as Catholics, as Christians, as others who are concerned about this issue to welcome those people who've lost their community, regret what they've done, and need a place of healing. I think in the same way that the pro-life community offers um, homes where mothers can ex uh, uh, expecting where expectant mothers can you know find refuge and find free health care and free cribs and free diapers is there something that we could be doing is there free medical care we could be offering is there a place of healing and hope that we could be offering to people who regret transitioning finally Share a vision for a respectful school climate with your school board and administration. Believe me, our schools have only heard one perspective on this issue, and it's coming from radical LGBT activist groups. Your board probably thinks that a gender inclusion policy or a sex ed curriculum infused with gender identity is the best way to be inclusive and doesn't realize that these policies are actually hurting the very kids they seek to help. Consider it your job to not only expose the negative consequences, but also to propose positive and constructive solutions that would respect and protect all students. 
We include in the Parent Resource Guide a long list of policy considerations and better solutions that you can share with your board. Here's a few of them. Let your school board know that any policy that includes the words gender or gender identity is a Pandora's box for viola violations of privacy, safety, health, and scientific accuracy in the classroom. If the school's writing policy that pertains to bodily sex or will affect students based on sex, then it needs to use the word sex. In fact, one of the easiest things we can all do, like I said before, is stop saying the word gender in favor of a much better word, sex. Anti-bullying policies should never result in violations of student privacy and safety. Ask that your school board avoid hiring radical activist organizations to present anti-bullying student assemblies or perform anti-bullying trainings. Schools actually help students to feel safe at school by fostering a culture of respect for the body. Students, and especially girls, really need to know that the school cares about their bodily privacy enough to provide them with single-sex spaces. Policies that strip girls of their right to privacy reinforce the notion that they're not in control of who can see their body when they're undressing. Of course, you're hearing a lot about this in the news. For a girl to compete safely and excel in athletics, she has to have sex-specific teams. School athletic policies that determine eligibility by gender identity instead of sex ignore the natural disadvantages girls face when they have to compete against boys. Parents should be made aware when their child is desiring to express a different identity at school. Many gender inclusion policies, in fact, the major model policy is put forward by LGBT organizations, always include a clause whereby the school does not have to or should not inform parents if their child wants to identify as trans at school. As we already learned, Schools that affirm kids who identify as trans are setting them up on a path to the school to gender clinic pipeline, I call it. We need to be careful that our policies never include that. Parents need to know right away if a student is starting to identify as trans so that they can be a part of any decision making in that child's life. Social contagion is the spread of thoughts and behaviors through information and mimicry. It plays a role in the transgender identification of children because schools that openly celebrate transgender ideas are enabling the spread of an idea that's causing young people to question their sex and it's steering children towards these irreversible treatments. You know, schools don't celebrate or enable the spread of ideas like drug use or alcohol use or self-harm. This really is no different and the school shouldn't at all be celebrating the spread of these ideas. Finally, school staff should be trained to know that kids are just kids. Their nonconformity to sex stereotypes is not a sign that they're transgender. And children shouldn't be made to feel that trying out the toys or games that are stereotypically associated with the opposite sex makes them transgender. Most importantly, I think if your school board is concerned about students who identify as trans, then they really need to hear some of the stories of regret from people who used to identify as transgender. I'm gonna read a few quotes exemplifying this painful regret. When I first realized I regretted my top surgery, 
I went off hormones and started hysterically crying every night. Gender affirmation destroyed my sex and made me a permanent medical customer. I wish I'd been taught instead to accept my once naturally healthy body. Genderism is a trap. I wish my body restored. Please help detransitioners. The only solution that was presented to me was to medically become a man. I don't want to become a lifelong medical patient. What I want and what I always wanted is peace with myself, not a surgically altered self, but my own self. I look in the mirror through the eyes of that terrified 15-year-old girl and see this funny little man staring at me. I'm a woman. I'm still Debbie. I wish I could turn back the clock and just have the foresight of what a nightmare the next 15 years would be. I'm trapped. It's a complete mess. Where do you even start? I just regret the decision. I thought the only explanation for my gender dysphoria must be that I was actually a man. I was struggling with self-harm and had attempted suicide on a number of occasions. I became convinced that my options were transition or die. I didn't understand that the degree of disconnect from and hatred of my body could be considered a mental health problem. The darkest moment was when I realized that I had actually looked normal for a girl, that I had actually been slim and pretty, that my body hadn't been grotesque in the way I thought it was. Now I will always have a flat chest and a beard, and there's nothing I can do about that. You're probably wondering what effect you can possibly have in the face of such a Goliath problem. If you feel outnumbered, remember that we didn't get to where we are today overnight. This Goliath grew from very small beginnings. The transgender issue is the result of decades of activism that started at the grassroots level and worked its way up to the top. We have to take the same approach. We have to build resistance to this trend, one parent at a time, united with people across the political spectrum. Because there is no one who will go unaffected by this ideology that erases sex. And that means our ranks are sure to grow. If you feel irrelevant, remember that you have the explosive and incalculable political power of living within the truth whereby even the tiniest statement of fact regarding human sex has magnitudes more strength than anything that's put out by wealthy and popular activist groups. Reality can't just be bought and discarded. Even when our situation requires that our resistance exist underground and outside the mainstream, we should never underestimate the power of our adherence to the truth or squander an opportunity to assert it. Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, we can firmly assert our inner freedom even in external conditions of unfreedom. Even in the worst of political or cultural circumstances, we have the freedom to tell the truth. If you feel too small, remember that our courage in this battle is necessary as a matter of justice towards those who have been or will be victimized by this ideology. This isn't just about our kids or our schools. This is about all kids and all schools. Everyone is needed here, and even small contributions are of value. 
Don't wait for someone smarter or more accomplished or more powerful than yourself to speak out because it's everyday people like you and I that will lead the way. Be not afraid. Together, I know we can change this culture to one that will proclaim every child is born in exactly the right body. Thank you. like to uh, bring up now uh, Patrick W. Lappert, MD, who is a permanent deacon in the Diocese of Birmingham. I have to say it like Forrest Gump, Alabama. <laughs> He's been married to his wife, Patrice, for 34 years. They have, s how many more? Oh, that's old. For, uh, they have six grown children. Has that changed? <laughs> This is amazing. He was raised in a Jewish home and lived most of his adult life as an atheist, but he converted and was received into the Catholic Church in 1995. Deacon Lappert, I know, hallelujah. He is a trained and board certified first as a general surgeon, then as a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. He's a veteran of our Naval Service, retiring with the rank of Captain U.S. Navy after serving for 24 years, in addition to being the Chief of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery for the Portsmouth Naval Hospital, he also served as the Surgeon General U.S. Navy as the specialty leader for reconstructive surgery. He established the Craniofacial Reconstructive Surgery Unit as well as the Wound Care Center for the largest medical treatment facility in the world. So we don't bring you no junk here tonight. <laughs> Additionally, he served for three years with the Marine Corps flying in the F-4 Phantom. Oh my goodness. So he divides his time now between his private practice of plastic surgery and is serving as a deacon at Annunciation of the Lord Catholic Church in Decatur, Alabama. He is also a chaplain for Courage in the Diocese of Birmingham. No small potatoes. Please give a warm Colorado welcome to Dr. Batten Lappert. Thank you for that lovely invitation, uh, first of all, and that lovely introduction. Um, and what an honor to follow that great presentation. Where's Emily? She disappeared. Oh, there she. That was that was tremendous. That was really tremendous, and and I'm I'm doubly grateful because the the, the things you covered uh, is 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 important in my talk, and that sort of frees me up to talk about other things because we are under some time constraint. But what I'd really like to start out with is, first of all, everyone recognizes that this is a very controversial subject, and particularly for people who take their faith seriously, uh, there's a there's a temptation to view this as an us versus them kind of situation, that we, we sort of barricade ourselves in our Catholicism and, and we, we, we try to understand what they're doing because they are the enemy and we're in opposition to them. And, and I have to remind myself, because I fall into this trap on a daily basis, that, that the enemy that we fight uh, is not the people that we see. What we, what we encounter in this issue of transgender are some seriously wounded people from adults to young children who are walking around with a spiritual wound and they're being drawn into this promise of happiness and, and that's what we're going to examine today. Uh, 
even the people who are public advocates for this thing are, are doing it from the standpoint of wanting to serve people whom they see as wounded, but they're, they're serving them in a way that is, that is not consonant with the truth, and that's really what we're here about. We're here about understanding the truth of what it means to be a human person, because ultimately that's, that's what people are struggling with, that this idea of identity is, is what people are struggling with, and their woundedness makes it hard for them to see that identity. And so I'd like to just begin with this quote from, from Faith and Reason, from Fides et Ratio, which is this wonderful uh, uh, document that St. John Paul II uh, brought to us in the church. Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. And God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth in a word, to know himself, so that by knowing and loving God, men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves. Faith and reason. Part of our problem is that in the public arena, we're being told that our Catholic worldview and our Catholic anthropology has no place in the public discourse. That, that we're told that your faith is interesting to you, but it has no bearing upon the problem. That the problem is a, is a problem of science and medicine, and we're being bullied out of the public conversation by experts. One of the unfortunate things about the introduction is that it kind of encourages people to think that expertise is what defines the truth. And the world is full of experts that are misleading people left and right. Amen? Yeah. And so, so we have, but we know as Catholics that, that the, the problem we're, we're facing here is this problem of identity and how human identity is rightly divined. And because of the nature of the human person, because we are these incarnate creatures that we are, uh, you cannot just examine this problem from a materialistic worldview. You, there's, there's something about the mystery of the human person that devolves down to the most important question that any of us will ever answer. Everyone in this room will be asked the question one day, at the end of your life, you're going to meet Jesus and he's gonna ask you this question. He's gonna say, who do you say that I am? That's the question. Who do you say that I am? Well, to, to, to rightly understand who Jesus is, is to understand the incarnation of God, and he is fully human person. This is, the enemy is, has given us this transgender problem because that's the target. If a child, if a child can look at themselves in the mirror and say, look at themselves bodily in the mirror and say, that's not who I really am right, then, then when they look at Christ crucified, they can imagine that, that that's not really God. That's really the, the, the nut right there. That's the heart of the whole thing. This is an attack on our understanding of who Jesus Christ is ultimately because if you, if you can say that humanity is a spirit creature that may or may not be in the right body, that our embodied self is illusory, then it's very easy to say that what Jesus did on the cross was an illusion because he wasn't really there. He's God and, and incarnation means nothing. That's how serious it is, right? So we war not against the flesh. We war against powers and principalities, against the rulers of this present darkness. And they have a lot of people allied with them right now. A lot of people who are seeking the truth, who are seeking to do good for people who are suffering, but who are being misled. So we're not in the business of winning arguments. The point of this talk is not to arm you to win an argument. The point of this is to make you so familiar 
with this problem and so familiar with the language of this problem that you can witness in love. You can anticipate where the argument's gonna go. You can anticipate the language that's gonna be used and you can meet them there and go, I understand why you object to this, but here is the truth of it. Here's the truth about the embodied nature of humanity. This is the difference between men and women. This is why we believe what we believe. Why? Because we're not in the business of winning arguments, we're in the business of winning friends. Friends to Jesus Christ, amen? Okay, and this is a wonderful topic to use for that. So uh, the better you know transgender, the better a witness you're gonna be for the hope that is in you because you can witness with love and you can win souls into where? Where everybody in Denver belongs in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, amen? amen. Thank you, okay, we're gonna press on now. All right, you guys are all over this, okay. All right, the challenge that we have is that the language that we're familiar with, the language of male and female, he created them, has now been replaced by this language of exceptional cases. And, and what it is at heart is in a very aggressive recharacterization of the nature of the human person. So we have to learn the language and we have to speak the local language. You have to understand the terms. As Emily pointed out, the use of this term gender, you have to know those four senses in which it is employed so that you can narrow the conversation down. Do you mean, by gender, do you mean this? Okay, let's talk about attraction. By gender, do you mean that? Okay, well, let's talk about our embodied nature. And, and so you can continue the conversation without getting flustered or upset just as St. Paul witnessed to the Greeks at Mars Hill in their language of their understanding of divine life, right? This God whom you have no name for, you remember that whole conversation he had? He spoke in their language. That's how he won the, the Athenians. Okay. That language is being given to children, as Emily pointed out, through a variety of means, but children are speaking with rehearsed language. Nine-year-old children don't naturally speak of themselves in this divided way. This is language that that child was given, right, in order to help them understand why they're, they're feeling the way they feel, right? This is how it's done. This is, these are books that you can find in public libraries that you may even find in your parochial school library. Librarians are a tricky lot. You gotta, you gotta watch them very carefully sometimes, okay? Uh, and, and people will bring books into, into libraries and put them in there and children will find them. Sometimes they're actually given to them by well-meaning school teachers. Right? We have public presentations on television of people who are, uh, imagine themselves to be serving transgender children. You know, public celebrities like this. I, I put this, this slide about the I Am Jazz television show up specifically the screen grabs to, to point out a few things. W one is in it you see an adult talking to a child about their future sex life. And they're having a public conversation. A, a pre-adolescent child is having a public conversation with an adult about their future sex life. That ain't right, okay. The second thing I wanna point out on this slide is always the issue of self-harm is brought in as the silence, the great silencer. Yes, you may have objections. Yes, you may have science behind you. Yes, 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 but we must act this way because the children are gonna kill themselves and who are you to, to actually cause a suicide with your objections? If a, if, a, if a house is burning, you don't start asking questions about the demographics of the people inside. You run in there and you pull them out and your objections can be answered later. So wherever this topic is presented, the threat of suicide is always brought in with it because it is, is placed there to silence your objections. 
And the last thing I point out on the screen grab is in the upper right-hand corner, you see that, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm speaking about slides on a, on a recording here. I'm not supposed to do that, but, <laughs> but anyway, what you see there is, is an encouragement to seek a future in media psychology, right? You can get a master's degree in producing programming like this. Okay, this is how the topic is presented. Now, this isn't just a side issue for us, that the, the natural law declares the will of God and its faithful observance is necessary for man's eternal salvation. You can't misapprehend the nature of the human person. You can't get all of that stuff wrong and imagine that you're serving their eternal salvation at the same time. Why? Because it's in our nature. Our nature is a hylomorphic nature. That's who we are. Human persons are body and spirit. Together, body and spirit comprise a single nature. It's not that we have an embodied nature. It's not that we are spirit creatures and that, that those two things are blended together. Our nature is a singularity. It's a hylomorphic singularity. And when you separate the two, in medicine, we have a definition for that. When you separate the soul from the body, that we have a technical term for that. It's called death, right? <laughs> yeah, so you can't, you can't claim to be un explaining the nature of the human person by beginning with this radical division between their, their soul, their spirit, and their body because in our nature, we are hylomorphic, and our salvation won't be fully worked out until those two are, we were once again a single self, right, in the resurrection from the dead, right? That's, that's when time ends, and, and until then, uh, it, it's not finished, right? So we are possessed of an intellect by which we can know the good, the true, and the beautiful, and we're possessed of a will by which we can choose the good, the true, and the beautiful, and therefore what we're dealing with here is a moral question, right? We can't just put this on the sideline like, you know, is it permissible to wear white before Easter? It's not that kind of, is it permissible to drive on the right-hand side of the road versus the left-hand side? These are not social conventions. We're talking about realities, and, and these are realities that, that have, a, have a moral claim, right, because of our nature. So I, I like to help high schoolers and, and younger people understand this issue by using, using the, the kind of the, the thought problem of imagine yourself as being a visitor from another planet and you're trying to understand life on this blue planet, and you start sampling the living world, and you come to these featherless bipeds that are walking about, and you snatch one up into your spaceship, and you start examining him. And you, and you can make some really good objective declarative statements about, well, he appears to have a skeletal system to which are attached these contractile structures that allow him to ambulate around and so on. The skeletal system, the muscular system, the circulatory system, neurologic system, and so on. And I, I will invite the high schoolers, you know, everybody in this room has a circulatory system. Everyone raises their hands because they take science class. And, and, a, and a nervous system, yes, yes, and they start waving their hands. And, and who in this room has a reproductive system? And every, all the hands go up, of course. At which point you can say, no one in this room has a reproductive system. Everyone in this room has reproductive parts, right? When you get to those parts of that single specimen that you have in your spaceship, you come to these parts and they don't explain themselves. They don't explain themselves unless you have the complementary other, right? These are obvious things that children used to understand very clearly when they grew up on farms, right? No longer, right? Yeah, no longer. These are, these are mysterious things. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so you, you come to these parts that don't explain themselves unless you have this complementary other. So you cannot claim to have a, a full objective understanding of the nature of the human person if you only have a single person in isolation, right? That, that, that 
in our very embodied selves, there is ample evidence that we are made for the other in our very bodies. Our bodies tell us. This is from the theology of the body, beautifully explained by St. John Paul II, but, but we see this, right? That the fullness of the human person is actually a community of persons, that you cannot explain where this featherless biped in your spaceship came from unless you have that complementary other, and then you go, aha, now I understand these parts, I understand where he came from, and now I understand who these creatures are, where they come from, right? So that's the dimorphism, that, that humanity is dimorphic that we have male and female, and, th and, this is, and without understanding that, you don't know humanity, and you don't even know where they came from. Hmm. Okay, so it's the human family that is our nature. So if you were a visitor from another planet and you wanted to understand the human person, you're better off hauling a whole family up into that spaceship, right? That the family is, the, is what humanity is, right? So when we as Catholics say, we are made in the image and likeness of God, what we're saying is we are made in the image and likeness of one God who in his very nature is a community of persons. That's the image we're made in, right? One nature, right? right? Three persons, that's the image we're made in. So we are, we are made for community, fruitful communion, right? That's the image we're made in. Okay. Some fun facts, which I see are, are, are much more beautifully presented in that, in that book. Dimorphism is a reality, right? Male and female are very different, for example, in terms of lean body mass. They don't even have any overlap, right? This lean body mass speaks to the muscle mass of the person, that females 69 to 75% lean body mass compared to 76 to 82, right? Dimorphism, fun facts, in sports. Do you realize that the boys' high school athletic record in every track and field event is better than the Olympic women's best? Flojo, whose record has stood now for a couple of decades, can't run as fast as the fastest high school boy. And these are boys who are not even fully physically mature yet, right? who haven't been training every day under the guidance of you know, like Flojo's husband trained her continuously for a couple of years to prepare for those Olympics, she can't run as fast as a high school boy. So our dimorphic nature is fairly self-evident. Okay. And by the way, the winner of the shot put female record is the East German female who won it in those years when the East Germans were doping their women with sex hormones. Right? That's how profound those hormones affect women's bodies. Here's the state champion female wrestler who is a trans male who's taking massive amounts of androgen hormones, super physiologic levels of androgen hormones because is a self-identified transgender male and is killing the competition, literally. Here's a transgender female who is in, in ultimate fighter competition who is literally killing their opponents. This is a man who has breast implants and is killing women in the ring. Okay, why do we have to consider first the nature of the human person when we're having this conversation? Well, these are what used to be self-evident things, but if I'm gonna do good medicine and surgery, I have to begin there, right? I have to begin with as thorough an understanding of the nature of the human person if I'm to have any hope of serving people with my medical and surgical care, right? So the nature of the human person defines the end or the goal of medical and surgical care. Likewise, 
The human nature is what is perfected by the life of grace. grace. Grace does not change you into something different. Grace perfects your human nature, right? So grace act, working in you is, is, the, is the supernatural analog to a doctor or a good, a good doctor working on you. We're, we both have the same goal, perfecting your nature. Whether it's perfecting, you know, the, the, your blood pressure, right, or, or your heart rate, or or a broken limb, or whatever it may be, and that human nature, of course, is perfectly realized in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That is the image of the human perfection, where the full the fullness of of all of that. Okay. Now, the language of transgender is an outgrowth of gender identity principles, which began in the sexual revolution. And at its heart, it has this divorce of the two aspects of human sexual union, the separation of the, of the fruitfulness of human sexuality from the unitive aspect of human sexuality through the contraceptive mentality that completely changed human sexuality in the minds of everyone now. That divorce is at the heart of this gender identity issue. And, and what, we're, what we're seeing there is this clash between a materialistic anthropology and Catholic anthropology. The materialistic anthropology is what is presented in public education now, right? That man is materially caused, Darwinism, right? We are the end of, of a, cause, a causal chain which is material in nature through these evolutionary processes. Man is materially caused. Freud gives us that man is materially driven, that you can speak of his drives as being biologically determined, bioenergetically driven, and that his highest good can be materially defined. So you have Darwin, Freud, and Marx, and that's what's presented as the fullness of what a human being is, materially caused, materially driven, and their highest good can be materially defined. Right? And within that language, I'll, I'll start with Freud, you have this, this, this definition that the search for pleasure is the central drive, that the sexual pleasure is seen as the zenith of that, and essentially, that worldview tells us that how that person's sexual experiences unfold will define the development of their personality. Pleasurable experiences, good personality development. Bad experiences, bad personality development. And the other thing that Freud gave to the world that few people understand is this idea of childhood sexuality. He presents the idea that, well, I'll get to that. So I summarize this worldview of, a, of sexuality, the modern sexuality is summarized thus. Adult sexuality is seen as this endlessly variable personal expression of individuality, the purpose of which is to produce joy for that person. It sometimes involves other people, and with alarming frequency is known to produce other people. Okay? It's a very selfish view of human sexuality. Why? Because no one has any money in the game because of contraception and because of this division and divorce, right? that you can separate the, the, the permanence of the sexual union of marriage, that you can divide those things and turn it into a totally selfish expression, right? Remember, you've, you've got only one person in that spaceship and you're trying to answer all those questions and you have this idea that the human person can be defined in this solitary worldview, right? Then so, that's how human sexuality is presented. It's an individual thing and, it, and it's individual satisfactions and reproduction is incidental and the other person is only incidental as well. The corollary to that is what I began with about Freud and childhood sexuality. It's seen as an analog to language. 
that the developmental result of childhood sexuality just as adult language is the developmental result of childhood language. For this reason, it's become the habit of psychologists and teachers to talk to children about adult sexual activity, like Barbara Walters having this public conversation and seeing it as some great good she's giving to this child. Well, we're gonna talk about your adult sexual life. Yeah, sure, you're only 10 years old, but we're, we're on this, this path. You're, we're changing your body. Why? Because you imagine yourself thus. Okay, what that does is it utterly destroys the normal development of chaste friendship. It is natural for a pre-adolescent child to prefer the company of members of his own sex. That's what boys like, that's what girls like. Why? Because that's part of their character development. They develop, they develop their identity among their peers and the other sex is seen as this exotic and distant and not to be approached carelessly kind of thing out there, right? But what is developing in the hearts of, in this, in this photo example of these boys, is this capacity for chaste love. And that's what's being destroyed by this conversation with children about their sexuality. If it's normal for an eight-year-old boy to prefer the company of boys, and in school he's getting gender unicorns to study, and the, and the person he most wants to spend his time with is his friend Bill, and, and he's being told by the teacher that the most profound expression of love is sexual in nature, then he's gonna start experimenting with the idea, well maybe if I really, uh, really love my friend Bill, it's supposed to be a sexual relationship. It's utterly destroying the normal development of chaste friendship, and chaste friendship is, is an anticipation of eternity. That's what consecrated life is, right? Consecrate, that's what married life is, but consecrated life even more so because it is an anticipation of how we will live in eternity. And we develop those capacities in this life. And so these conversations with children about their sexuality is a demonic thing. Don't think of it as anything less than that, but remember that the people who are having those conversations aren't themselves demonic. They're, they're seeking the good of that person, but they're being influenced by ideas that are not kosher. Okay. So, some things never leave you, right? Okay. So, okay. So, now, so this, this sense of them, this sexual sense of themselves is, is this sense that of radical autonomy growing up in a world of radical isolation. The, the sexual self is, is seen from, as this meeting of these solitary needs through these private satisfactions. The other person is only incidental to the goals of the subject. That's why they can look at this gender unicorn and go, well, what am I attracted to? Well, what gets me excited? Well, I think boys get me excited. And it's me, 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 me. How am I going to be fulfilled? Which is a radical, in, and, and again, we're back to that one solitary person in the spaceship, which is not in the nature of the person, right? It's not ordered to the gift of self, but to the use of the other. Who's gonna make me happy? I think boys are gonna make me happy. Right? What kind of activity is gonna make me happy? Well, I think this is gonna make me happy. So it rehearses in their minds, number one, that they're the center of, of all this, and that other people are to be used to achieve that satisfaction, right? So sexual identity just becomes a particular collection of preferences and behaviors that appear to satisfy. Well, how is a children supposed to discover that? How are children supposed to discover that? Well, as Emily showed us here, this is how they're supposed to find it. Asking themselves these questions, first of all, that children shouldn't even be thinking about. Pre-adolescent children, why are they thinking about their sex itself? So 
they'll, they'll, they'll try answering these questions. And how else do they do it in these days? Well, these days, they do it in this community of isolation called social media. And they do it through a sexualization of normal pre-adolescent and adolescent friendships. Gee, I love Bill. Maybe it's supposed to be sexual. And they also do it by sampling pornography online. You have children now, the average age of first contact with online porn is, I think, nine now. Yeah. Because that's when kids are getting their phones, because parents are worried, well, when she's at soccer, she's going to need to be able to call me. They got the phone. And they entered this community of radical isolation, trying to seek to answer that question, who am I? Right? Who am I? OK, that's a very dark thing, so I sh present good this truth and beauty there. OK. <laughs> in, in, order to understand, in order to understand this, you have to understand something about plastic surgery. Right? In order to get at the morality of these services that are being offered to people, you need to understand what plastic surgery is. So I'll give you a brief overview. We'll sort of bounce back and forth. Plastic surgery is a specialty that's ordered to the perfection of the human person, right? In form and in function. That's what plastic surgery is about. Form and function in the service of the human person toward their perfection. Now, we don't achieve perfection this side of eternity, but that's, that's our aim. That's what we aim at. We try to understand, because humanity is not perfect. Right? Chesterton gives a wonderful conversation about this that, you know, our heart is in the center of our chest. Almost. Almost. We're bilaterally symmetrical. Kinda. Right? It's not, it's not perfect. Normal blood pressure is this most of the time. It's a range, you know? And, and so that's what human perfection, human perfection isn't a single thing. Right? The Greek sense of human perfection is, those tend to be these marble things that, that are never achieved in real life. But anyway, that's what we aim at. We aim at. And sometimes, you know, it's because of wounds, sometimes it's because of cancer, whatever it may be. And sometimes it's because the person doesn't feel right. Aesthetics. Aesthetic surgery is about surgery of the feelings. That's what aesthetic means, right? So we, we, we are both. Aesthetic surgery, reconstructive surgery. Sometimes people come to the plastic surgeon because they have a, a profound interior sorrow, a profound anxiety about something in their life. You can tell that they have a wound, and they're seeking a material explanation for it, right? There's, their marriage is falling apart, and they imagine it's because their breasts are not beautiful anymore. And this is a common thing. And they're seeking to remedy this, this terrible woundedness in their marriage by changing their physical appearance. Sometimes it's a man who's failing in industry and he thinks it's because his nose looks so weird and he, he wants you to change his nose. They're seeking a material explanation for an interior sorrow. Right? That's called body dysmorphic disorder. It's a common thing in plastic surgery and we're trained to recognize it because it's an injustice to offer surgery to people who have body dysmorphic disorder. A anorexia is an example that's accessible to most people. For an anorexic to come in and explain to me that they're obese and they want liposuction, for me to nod my head and say most major credit cards accepted is a tremendous injustice. You don't liposuction an anorexic. But they think of themselves as obese. Why? Because it's a way for them to explain this interior sorrow. People don't come near me because I'm fat, even though they're skeletal. Sometimes people seek limb amputations. Sometimes I wonder why people can have a sober conversation in public about the morality and ethics of elective limb amputation, and yet it's happening. Body dysmorphic disorder is a subcategory of obsessive compulsive disorder. We've understood this for many decades. They typically present as depressive, they consider themselves outcasts, and they will have this obsessive thought that drives a, a compulsive behavior. 
You don't feed the obsessive thought. You, manage, you help them manage the obsessive thought by giving them serotonin reuptake inhibitors so that that interior voice isn't so loud. And because the voice isn't so loud, it makes them accessible to cognitive behavioral therapy to help them to understand where their anxiety really lies and why they think of themselves this way. You know, why they imagine their hands are dirty all the time and they keep running off to wash their hands, right? That's the standard of care for body dysmorphic disorder. And yet, in the case of gender dysphoria, the, the, the content of that obsessive thought is not, are their hands dirty? The content of that obsessive thought is their sexed self. I don't look the way I know I should. They speak of themselves as being in the wrong body. Right? The world does not accept me as I know I really am. I know I really am a woman. It leads to social isolation, incongruous behavior, a secret life associated with a lot of shame. And it's a terrible situation. So they have this obsessive thinking with varying degrees of dysphoria, meaning unhappiness. They perceive something that's not objectively there. They perceive themselves as a woman when they're objectively man, and so on. And this is a form of delusional thinking. Delusional is not a pejorative term. It is a term of diagnosis that's been around forever. It's an idea held with certainty, with absolute conviction. It's not changeable by compelling counterarguments to the contrary, and it's impossible. It's impossible that a girl with a body mass index of 13 is obese. And yet, you tell an anorexic that, they'll shake their head and go, oh, BMI of 13. You think if you liposuction me here, we can kind of trim up around my waist? It's, they're inaccessible to the truth, right? It's, it, and, the, and the facts, that idea is impossible. It's impossible that a BMI of 13 is obese. And yet, that's what the public conversation is about now. We're being asked to believe that a person who has a Y chromosome in every somatic cell of their body is in fact a woman. That's what the public conversation's about. We're being told it isn't a delusion because it is possible that a person with Y chromosomes in every cell of their body is a woman. This is the kind of the historic sense of transgender and body dysmorphic disorder, but there is a new creature abroad in the world what we call rapid onset gender dysphoria. In this paper published last year by Lisa Littman, she demonstrates that particularly among young women, there is this online community going on where there's this, this sense of isolation, a sense of themselves as not being right. They're getting together online and they're helping each other to imagine themselves as being men. They rehearse their answers. They rehearse the answers to the questions that doctors are gonna ask them and they get all their stuff right. And that's where you see these, you know, 20-fold increase in transgenderism in people who never thought of themselves as the other sex, and suddenly, you got a high school-age girl who thinks of herself as a boy, when they didn't even have an inkling of that in pre-adolescence. That's rapid-onset gender dysphoria. This paper was pulled within a week of its publication because in one fell swoop, you see that there's something going on here that has absolutely nothing to do with with surgery and biology. This is a psychosocial thing going on here. Okay. Always remember that persons who experience transgenderism, the sense of themselves, have comorbidities. They have other things going on in their life that you must seek if you're, if you're aiming to help that person. Very high alcohol and drug abuse, very high incarceration rate, homelessness is very high, and suicidality is very high. Lifetime risk of suicide is some number on the north side of 41%. It has variable expression. Some people, you know, they privately cross-dress and that's enough to manage this interior wound. That's all they need. But 
they get to a point where it's no longer managing and they try public cross-dressing, then they try changing their persona and so on. So that's what's called transitioning. And when they're transitioning, they're likely to fall into all kinds of trouble. That's when the incarcerations happen. That's when the physical violence happens. The person most likely to beat up the transgender person is the person in their life who they thought was their friend, probably the one they're having sexual relations with. That's the person most likely to physically abuse the trans person. Okay, all right. Biological determinism always comes in. I gotta throw in these clownfish because in public school, they're being told, well, here's an example of transgenderism among fish. You put a, you put a male clownfish in isolation, he's gonna turn himself into a female and he's gonna start producing eggs. And, he's, and yeah, and so fish do this, men, men do this too. Right? That the idea is that if you can find a biological determinant here, that it will excuse morality from the conversation. Right? Hey, it's, you know, God made me this way, it's my biology, and so on. One must always remind them that bears eat their young. <laughs> There's a lot of things that happen in the animal world that are not morally right. Amen? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so biology, biological determinism doesn't excuse anything. Okay. But is there a genetic explanation for transgender? We learn in school about these examples of Klinefelter syndrome, androgen insensitivity syndrome. That's what I have, right? There are all kinds of things that happen in, in human development that can cause these accidents of appearance, like non-disjunction chromosome things like Klinefelter syndrome, XXY. Male, they have a Y chromosome, but an extra X chromosome, so they have a lot of feminine features. There are clinics for persons who are intersex, right? Persons who have these ambiguities of their genitalia that are seen at birth. And we seek to understand the causes so that we can intercept them and what? Help them to human perfection to the very best that we can. Sometimes it involves surgery, sometimes it involves medications, but a lot of these things can be intercepted, right? Very often they'll have difficulty voiding and you need to fix those things. Okay. I'm gonna jump ahead here. So is it genetic, like Klinefelter's? No. There's no genetic marker. You take a transgender person, you do a genetic study on them, you're not gonna find anything there that will confirm the diagnosis. They have normal male or female genetics. Is it hormonal, like adrenal hyperplasia? No. Normal hormonal levels for age sex matched persons. There's no hormonal explanation for it. Is it anatomical structural? Is there a transgender brain? No. All you see when you do these studies, dynamic studies of the brain, is that brains are very malleable things. That you can have a man who can have responses that are very feminine if they've acclimated themselves to deriving pleasure from certain things repetitiously. If you scan my brain when I was nine years old and wafted single malt scotch under my nose when I was nine years old, you would have seen revulsion, 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 right? But you're, you're a Marine Corps fighter squadron Wow, well, wouldn't that be great? So, so if you did this, depending on when in my life you did the brain scan, you might think, oh, he's born a teetotaler. Oh, oh, he's born an alcoholic. No, I just served in the Marine Corps. Yeah, okay. So, the, so always look at these studies with great caution, particularly dynamic brain studies that claim to have found the transgender brain. Okay. There's a great difficulty in separating nature from nurture, and that's to be expected. Why? Because we are hylomorphic creatures. Yeah, right? How we are made and what we experience, all of them together affect who we are. That, the, that every other human trait we know of is a mixture of both, pretty much, right? Okay. The gold standard is always the twin study, and I bring this into the, into the conversation because you need to understand this case. You know, 
psychologists are always looking for the twin study. They're always looking for that thing that will help you parse out what's genetic and what's experiential. And if you can find twins and give them different experiences, you can go, oh, no, that's determined by experience, or oh, no, that's determined by genetics. The problem is you can't get moms to give up their twins, right, to do things like this. But sadly, in history, it did happen. It happened to these twin boys, one of whom was mutilated during circumcision, and sadly, they, they, they came to the Johns Hopkins University where they met this man, John Money, who was on their intersex clinic staff, who convinced the mother to raise the one boy as a girl. And he began publishing papers about what a success it was that this boy was raised as a girl and, and is a perfect little girl. And he started writing papers, and I'll call it kind of, it took on a political dimension. The gender feminists got into the act. They said, see, you know, this is all about, you know, repressive patriarchy stuff that's making things this way, and publishing papers, and everybody's publishing papers, everybody's referencing his work. Problem was, it was a gigantic lie. I won't give you the details because of, for time's sake, but just look up, Google search the Reimer twins, and you're going to be shocked. The problem is, he never took any of that back. John Money never rescinded any of his claims that, that this was a perfect example of how you can raise a boy to be a girl. Hmm, science, yeah, expert, right, okay. This is used as the scientific basis for gender politics. And we're told that gender assignment is a process of repression. In that, in that gender unicorn thing, it's like, what did the doctor assign you as if it's a form of repression, right? Forces persons into this binary model of expression. This is the language that's used. Sexual expression is, is presented as a form of political expression. In fact, today, that's seen as the highest form of political expression and independence. Is that not only can I define what party I'm voting for, I can even define whether I'm a man or a woman. Ultimate radical autonomy. And Dr. Money's twin study proved this conclusively. Read that. Read about that. On Okay. Again, we have to stop and take a breath. A little mercy. Okay. All right. Now, this is, this, is the, this is the kernel of making the judgment about the morality of plastic surgery and transgender. There are basic principles in, in plastic surgery. We are about the establishment or the restoration of form and function. That's what we do. And it's based, again, upon this thorough understanding of the nature of the missing or the injured part and its relationship to the person. Again, we aim ourselves at the perfection of the human person. Not that we're going to reach that, but that's our aim. That's our goal. Okay. Sometimes it's trauma. Sometimes it's cancer. Sometimes it's missing at birth. But we begin with the understanding. In this case, an understanding of the nature of the human hand, the anatomy, the function, what that hand is called to do in the fullness of the life of the person. And not only generally about what hands do, but what the hand is doing for this particular man and what he's working in industry. He lost his thumb in a punch press. And, he, and the work he does, he has to grip his work to run the punch press. Without a thumb, he can't grip his work. You ask him, do you want a pretty hand? He'll say, I don't care if my hand looks pretty or not. Form is secondary. Function trumps everything. Can I say Trump? Function trumps everything. <laughs> Right? And so this is, this is what the surgery did for him, is turned his index finger into a thumb. Okay? So that thumb that, he, that you see there is actually his index finger moved into the thumb position. Why? Because prehensile function is the most important thing in his life, and he doesn't care what his hand looks like. So we paid a price. We paid a donor price. The donor site was his index finger for the sake of grip strength. That's called the donor defect. Very important concept. Okay. I'll jump ahead. It can, sometimes the problem is congenital, right? Would you see a child like this and say, well, God made the child this way, 
It's not our place to change that, right? They're born this way. Why would you do anything to change that? Right? Well, we do things to change that because we understand the nature of the human person, and we know that the fullness of what it means to be a human person is really helped by the capacity to speak clearly, to be able to feed yourself without regurgitating your crispies through your nose, right? There's a lot of important things that happen because you have an intact palate and your lips are closed, right? So the nature of the human person drives the surgeon to do operations on this child to, to solve that problem, right? But this child paid a donor defect. When we closed their palate, it created scars in their mouth that's going to affect the way their face grows. And they'll need further surgery later on to correct that. That's the donor defect, though. The donor defect in the case of a cleft palate is the effect of the scar on their facial growth. Every reconstructive operation has a donor defect. Okay. So what will be lost or compromised? What is the risk-benefit? Very important. So file that away. Ahead we go. Persons who are transgender go through this process of transitioning. It will begin through social things, name, hairstyle, clothing, and then it leads on to more physical things like uh, remo hair removal, facial surgeries, what's called top surgery, uh, changing your driver's license, all kinds of things. That's a transition. If you go to the typical psychologist psychiatrist who's a member of the APA, and you present with this gender nonconforming or this gender dysphoria thing, you will be encouraged to enter that pipeline because it's policy in the APA. If you go to a pediatrician who's a member of the AAP, you will be encouraged to follow down that road. You won't be offered help with the body dysmorphic disorder business and the SSRIs and the cognitive behavioral therapy because that's now considered hate speech. Right? Yeah, so this is, the, this is the path that they will be led down. Right? How does it begin? It begins with psychological testing for maleness and femaleness. Right? So they begin by denying that there is such a thing as male or female, and the first thing they do is test for that. <laughs> okay. All right. And then they will be offered you know, this identity development, cross-sex hormones, puberty blocking if they're pre-adolescent, and on they go. This is how they're fed into that pipeline. Emily pointed out this case of this Oregon student, eight years old, pulled out of recess to be coached in transgender by a well-meaning teacher who thought, well, I'm gonna do this child a solid and I don't have to report this to the parents. I'm gonna you know, encourage this kid and, and someday take him down to the pediatric clinic. This is what it looks like in Philadelphia. That teacher could have taken him to this clinic. Providers, patients, and parents are ready to start hormone therapy with testosterone to help him align his body with who he has always known he was on the inside. Listen, I, I, I'm a, my undergraduate degree is in cellular physiology. I did four years of medical school. I did five years of general surgery residency. I did four years of plastic surgery residency. I'm board certified in all those things. I never once heard a lecture or read a textbook that said the human person is in their nature a spirit creature that occupies a body. Never did I hear, and yet, here it is, who he knows he was. He's the driver. A child is driving the diagnosis. A child is driving the therapy. Remember, I don't have a test. I can't do a CAT scan. I can't do a blood study. I can't do a chromosome study. I can't do anything to confirm or refute the claim that a pre-adolescent child is making, and it's leading to irreversible therapies. There's no other area of healthcare where pre-adolescent children are making the diagnosis. And yet this is considered the WPATH standard of care. This is what it looks like in Indianapolis. 
Gender dysphoria is a condition which someone experienced gender does not match the gender other people assign to him. Without proper care, increased risk of depression and suicide. You better get out of the way. This kid's going to kill themselves. This is what it looks like in Denver. We believe gender diverse children need a stable support system as they navigate, they're the navigators, as they navigate their transition, which is why we offer support not only to our patients, oh, by the way, we'll talk to their parents and families as well. The families, the parents are incidental to these processes. So if that child gets brought to the transgender clinic, just wave goodbye. And I'm serious about that. Here's the fact, this is, if you leave this talk with no other fact, stored away, it's this. Pre-adolescent children who are, who are being introduced to these ideas, okay? If you took 100 boys who think they're girls, pre-adolescent children, 100 boys think they're girls, or 100 girls who think they're boys, and you did nothing for them but raise them the way parents raise their children, 91% of them will desist. 91% of them will stop thinking of themselves that way by the time they reach early puberty. If you take the same hundred children to Denver Children's Transgender Clinic, 100% of them will persist in that idea, okay? Just to, if you knew nothing else. They are willing to accept 91% wrong diagnosis and put that child in permanent medical care. And there's no proof of the safety of giving puberty blocking drugs to anybody. Okay, surgery is broken down into two categories. Top surgery, bottom surgery. Top surgery is mostly reversible, except mastectomy is not reversible. And we now have 13, 14-year-old girls getting mastectomies. You can't reverse that. Bottom surgery is irreversible. You can't take that back. And I'm treating a number of people now who want to go back and can't. Okay. So it's the willful sterilization of the procreative function and the simultaneous degradation of the unitive aspect. That's grave matter. And never forget that transgender care is linked to assisted reproductive technology. They are in bed together because everybody who's getting transgender surgery is banking ova and sperm for future proxy pregnancies and humanity is being turned into a commodity and people are being told before they have their surgery that they have a right to a child. No one has a right to another person. That is the language of slavery. And children are being presented now as not only as a commodity, but the product of this gigantic governmental process that involves universities, the healthcare industry, and decisions by insurers, primarily public insurance. Children will be presented to us as a product of the government this way. Great diabolical evil. So I'm gonna jump ahead. Are we saving people from suicide? By doing these things, it looks like for a while we are. But if you look beyond eight years, if you look at a paper that claims to show a benefit, that's the first thing you should look at. Did they follow these patients beyond eight years? Because if they stopped at five years, they missed the important fact that when you get beyond eight to 10 years, the bottom falls out. That the suicidality comes right back, right back to 41%. And 10 years out, what you have is a internally wounded person whose genitals you've mutilated. And that's considered healthcare. Okay, uh, there are resources, but we're gonna stop now because we, we wanna open this up to questions and, and, uh, and I'm gonna stop now. So thank you very much. Oh, so 
So the first question, and I'll let you guys decide who answers which, um, but you gotta answer some of them. <laughs> what do I say to a family member whose child is trans and who feels her only choice is to support her child? So um, you'll notice in the parent resource guide that we have supporting organizations. That's where I pointed out we have a radical feminist organization that is supporting the parent resource guide. There's also two organizations in there that are specifically set up to help families and parents who are dealing with a transgender identifying child. One is called Parents of ROGD Kids, and the other is called the Kelsey Coalition. Both of them have fantastic resources for parents in that situation and can offer some really good advice. Parents of ROGD Kids has chapters all over the country. This is an exploding issue, so I don't know how many states they have, but they're all over the country. Some of the groups are rather large, and it's a place where parents can meet and talk and support one another, um, share advice, and et cetera. So I would recommend that families seek out those two resources. Uh, what I would add to that is uh, when you have a child uh, who, uh, who presents as being trans, uh, what you need to understand about that is that that's a family dynamic. The care of that child is not done in isolation. You don't take the child aside and you know, wag your finger at them, no, no, you're a boy. No, it's nothing like that. What it is, it's a family dynamic. And usually when you, when you delve into that, what you find is that there's, there's uh, anxieties about personal safety, anxieties about, uh, about relations, particularly with father. There's a dynamic there that needs to be addressed. And unless you address that, particularly in the pre-adolescent child, you're not going to get anywhere. So if a parent comes to you saying, what am I going to do? I have no choice but to affirm. First thing you want to do is help them disentangle themselves from whatever public service mechanism they may have become entangled in. Because I'm testifying in court, trying to give help people get their children back because their children have been taken from them by the courts because they won't participate in transgender care. So you always have to find out what disentangling processes they're going to have to go to. But, it, but care for that child is really care for the family because transgender is primarily a family dynamic problem. Uh, and and you, we've mentioned the parent resource guide. So we only have so many here today. If somebody wants to get the parent resource guide, Emily, how can they go about doing it? What would be the website they would go to so that they could order some copies of this? I forgot to put that slide up. If you want to order a copy of the parent resource guide, either in a printed version or would like our free PDF download, you can uh, email me at askmefirstmn at gmail.com. We're going to have a website that will host the parent resource guide where you can easily order copies and download, but that won't be available for probably another month. So in the meantime, please feel free to um, send me an email. I can maybe put up the slide, but it's askmefirstmn at gmail.com. OK, great. And I know uh, you both touched on it, and Dr. Lappert, you just recently talked about it, but I think it's important uh, to talk about, again, the statistics on suicide for people that have had the transgender surgery, because we hear that they get, we get threatened with, if you don't do something, they're going to kill themselves. Can we go over that again? Because I think it's important for people Absolutely. to have that armed with that. Yeah, so there's always that threat of suicide. 
And, and, and if you look at the medical literature on the subject, what you'll find is that it's, it's, it's built on sand. You look at the papers, and I, and I review the literature about every three or four months. I'll, I'll query the database and see, well, what's the latest summary on the, the merits of transgender care and its effect on suicidality and self-harm? And it's always the same. You'll have a study of you know, 35 self-selected patients you know, it, it's only the ones who are alive that come back to answer the questionnaire, obviously. So how do you account for them? Well, the Swedish study answered those questions because that's a registry study. And everybody who lives in Sweden from, from womb to tomb, every event of medical care, every time they're incarcerated, every time they, they get a prescription, it's in the database. And you can perfectly match subjects in there and ask the question. I have a 37-year-old, middle in the birth order, blue collar, not college educated, transgender male. Find me one who matches that, and what's the likelihood? One will be an alcoholic and one won't. And what that shows us is it's just like body dysmorphic disorder. If you do a rhinoplasty on a, on, a, on, a, on a man who thinks he's failing in life because his nose looks wrong, he'll feel better for a while. And everybody will be excited about his new nose, but then he'll come back in a couple of years and go, you did a bad job on my nose. This is terrible. You need to change it back. Why? Because nobody is supporting him any longer in his new self. This is what happens to trans people. They have this huge support process. They go through this whole thing, and for years afterwards, they go, you look just like a beautiful woman now. Well, the excitement dies away after a while. And eight, 10 years down the road, they're still there, but now they're alone with that wound that was never addressed, and their suicidality is right back at greater than 41%. So it helps for a while just like a rhinoplasty in an inadequate man will help for a while, but then it doesn't. The wound is still there. You can't, you can't heal an internal wound with external surgery. Patently obvious, amen? Yeah. Okay, Emily, uh, do you advocate working with state and national, and national legislators to fix this? Or is it better off staying local with your local school, school board and teachers? Well, start local for sure, because that's where you can have a personal relationship. So again, I encourage you to, to introduce yourself, talk about your child, meet your teachers, offer to volunteer your time and talents at your school, because you're going to have the biggest impact when you have a personal friendship or relationship with someone. So start local. But if you have opportunities to work with your state legislature, if there are opportunities to testify, if there are opportunities to write letters, um, to weigh in on a national issue, do it. Don't miss any opportunity, especially if you've got a compelling personal story to share um, or, or some um, personal way that this issue has touched your life. Share those stories. The other side has been doing that for a very long time. You know, I think it's great, you know, People like Deacon Lappert, who are brilliant and can come in and make these wonderful abstract, you know, arguments. But what he does that's so great too is is add in the personal, add in the stories of people's lives. So we can't just be out there saying this is wrong. We have to be giving the why. We have to be telling our personal stories. So any place that you're able to do that, local or national, do it. And I know it's probably in the resource guide, but also. How do we organize other parents? I mean, you've gone through this. What would you recommend to someone sitting here tonight who finds this a burning issue and, and they want to organize people? Where, where should they start? 
Well, again, start with relationships. So get into your school and start volunteering. Um, we were at our public charter school for 12 years before the whole transgender bomb went off. And uh, in those 12 years, I'd done a lot of stuff at the school, worked as a lunch lady. I knew pretty much everyone, and I knew who it was I needed to email when this issue took off. Um, so it's, it's getting involved. That's the number one most important thing you can do because then you're gonna know who your people are when you need to gather up um, the troops. So introduce yourself, get to know people and so forth. And then you know when, when you're organizing parents to take action, um, use a tone similar to what we've used in the parent resource guide so that you can gather the largest possible group. Let's not talk about this, again, as a right or left issue or as a Christian or atheist issue. This is an everybody issue, so try to use language that will loop in as many people as possible. So how do we handle it when someone asks us to refer to someone by their own personal pronoun, which contradicts their reality? Okay. In, in 10 words or less. Oh, gosh. I don't think I can do that. I'll try on Twitter tomorrow. How about that? Okay. But I've thought about this issue a lot, and, and here's what I have to say. Language is meant to represent reality. Communication isn't possible unless I'm using words that are attached to things. So if I decide to start calling chairs dogs, and I'm talking all about sitting on dogs, you're going to go, what? Right? Our words need to be attached firmly to the things that they're meant to represent. So to use someone's so-called preferred pronouns is to detach the language we use to talk about one another from the reality of their body. And I'm sorry, but that's a lie. The other thing about preferred pronouns is that we don't use them, I don't use she, her when I'm talking directly to you. I use pronouns when I'm talking about you to someone else. What I'm doing when I do that is spreading the idea to someone else that you're not who you say you are. I'm participating in spreading this idea. So one thing that I tell people all the time is don't play this game. We use he, him with males and she, her with females and we keep it that way. A lot of this issue is, is dependent upon people remaining confused. And so when you're reading stories about the, you know, some uh, violent criminal who was arrested and it turns out it's a woman, or maybe I should reference the, the female hacker. Did everyone see that story? The first female hacker, Bank of America, millions of people's data stolen, that was a man. But you'd never know it from the media reports because they've decided to detach words from reality. Let's not play that game. Yeah. I, I, what I would add to that is um, that people who, who you're trying to help along in this, they, they, the first thing they have to understand about you is that you care for them. And so you're, you don't serve somebody with lies, right? Before you can have charity, you have to have clarity, right? The truth, the truth is more than just a collection of propositions. The truth is a person the person of Jesus Christ. And, so, and so, so to deny the truth, remember the truth is necessary for our salvation, the objective realities, remember that from, okay. So, so what I prefer to do is come up with a loving term for them, you know, a diminutive term like, I'm gonna call you, you know, B instead of 
Zay or whatever the heck it may be. I'm going to give them a nickname because a nickname conveys that they're special in your life and that you, and that you love them. And, and you don't need to fall into the trap of using false words. Let, let your expressions be expressions of love for them and expressions of love that are truthful. Right. So nicknames and those kind of terms are very helpful with that. So, and it also obligates you. Something I have a lot of trouble with is remembering people's names. <laughs> you can remember people's names. <laughs> At what age should we start talking to our children about this? Now, we did a conference back in October, and Dr. Lappert, you were here for that, and I heard from a number of parents who send their kids to Catholic school who told me that I don't know how to talk about this, so I don't say anything. I let, the, I let society dictate to them. So this is a question, at what age should I start talking to my children, in, in obviously age-appropriate language, but when should we start talking to our children uh, about this issue? Well, I'll take the first crack at this one. Um, I think all conversations of this nature are prudential matters. So you need, you're the parent, you know your children best, you know when they're ready to have a conversation or need to have it. But to start off, I, I wouldn't proactively bring this up, especially with a young child. Young children will not understand it. Just like I talked about the, the concept of sex constancy in child development, they won't get it. They won't understand. So the, the best thing to do is just reinforce positive notions of who they are. So, you know, making sure, you know, a boy understands it's that's no big deal if he likes a pink shirt, if somebody was making fun of him for it. That doesn't mean anything. Um, or, you know, other positive reinforcements of the beauty of their body and the abilities of their body and the amazing things that their body can do. These are all ways of talking about this without talking about it. And I think that's important with the youngest kids. But when it comes to older kids, this is a conversation that needs to be a little bit more direct. And that's, that's gonna be up to you what amount of information is appropriate. But kids are and will be getting information from the other side. So you might as well assume if you've got an adolescent, especially if you're letting them on the internet, on a phone, you probably do need to bring this up. And an important way to talk about it is to talk about consequences and your concern for those who are affected by those consequences. Okay, we'll just get uh, one or two more questions here. Um, where can people go to find out more information on this topic, to get better educate themselves? I know this was a good starting point, but to stay on top of the ever-changing language that's used, what, you know, are there any websites? Where can people go to, to better educate themselves and stay educated on it as this continues to change? Um, get a parent resource guide. <laughs> Beyond that. <laughs> Um, one, one thing that's, that I like about the Parent Resource Guide is we have a ton of footnotes. Maybe you don't like footnotes, but one great thing about footnotes is those are all resources and websites that will direct you to further information. And we cited multiple times really helpful websites. We didn't list any of them as resources that can be helpful because I didn't want to use anyone's name that didn't maybe want me to use it. But please look at the footnotes in that guide. Um, I think you'll, be, you'll uh, find a wealth of information there. Uh, and what I would add to that is uh, three resources. One of them is the, uh, the Courage website, 
um, that has materials in there. Some of it are some of the materials are video format. Some of them are printed documents. Uh, so it's Courage RC, as in Roman Catholic, CourageRC.org, uh, and there's also a link there to another website called Truth and Love. Truth and Love website is a wealth of, of uh, informational material that's helpful, not only with regard to transgender, but also uh, same-sex attraction and you know just issues relating to uh, our sexuality. And then the, the last resource I very strongly recommend to you is a, a resource a website uh, that's run by a man named Walter Heyer. Uh, Walter went through the whole process himself. It's what you see on that website is the lived experience of somebody who went through the entire transition process and what it did to his life and how he's come back and where he is now. And he has lots and lots and lots of people on that website who present their lived experience, which is something people need to understand. Because what, they're, what you're gonna get from a pediatric endocrinology clinic, what you're gonna get from a plastic surgeon's office, is this idealized sense that, boy, you're gonna be a woman. And, and the lived experience is something radically different from that. So Walter Heyer's website is called Sex Changed Regret. Sex Changed Regret. I think it's a .com, sexchangeregret.com, and Walter is a, just a lovely person who is a wonderful public speaker and a tremendous resource, and he'll respond to messages and phone calls because that's what he's devoted his life to now. So if there's somebody in your life who's struggling with this and they want to know where that, that, that trajectory ultimately leads to, Walter is the resource. And he endorsed the parent resource guide. <laughs> The other resource I'd bring up is the National Catholic Bioethics Center. has a great uh, multitude of uh, resources on all tough moral issues, but they really hit the trans issue pretty hard, so I would uh, highly suggest that as well for everyone. They also endorsed the Parent Resource Guide. Are there any sports teams that endorse this? We have some coaches. Okay, okay. Okay, that's great. And I think, you know, both of you kind of touched on this, but the question is, uh, how do I deal with the argument of compassion for these people, right? There's something called false compassion. So how do we address that uh, and not look like the haters we're trying to be painted into? Yeah, that's the, and that's the heart of it. That's, the heart of it is that this is a mission of mercy. Your involvement, your, your helping people here is, is, a, is, an, is a work of mercy, and, and all of it rests on the truth. So you have to be insistent on the truth, but the people to whom you're presenting the truth have to first and foremost know that you love them, right? And, and people are served first by the truth. So compassion, has, in order to be real, has to be based on the truth, and again, the truth is a person. So this is an opportunity for you to help them grow closer to our Lord, right? Because that's the answer to that interior wound in the first place. The perfection of the human person is the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. And he's the one who's there to help the wounded person. So it's an occasion for you to bring them to him. Amen? Amen. I love to do that. I feel like a Baptist <laughs> preacher. I love it. Okay, well, to honor everybody's time, we're going to wrap it up here. Can we give a round of applause to both of our speakers? Thank you.